0: How's everybody doing? Hey, you guys can be seated. I'm excited to be in San Diego. And, uh, you know, God has a sense of humor, really. Some of us, we actually listen to the call of the Lord and go to places like Missouri where there's nothing really fancy about it. And then other places, other pastors like Aaron and Amanda Jane say the Lord called them to San Diego, you know. And uh, But no, hey, we're excited to be here, and uh, you have tremendous pastors, and you guys know that, but Pastor Aaron and Amanda, incredible leaders, but more than that, they're incredible people, and uh, we absolutely love them, and we've become just great friends with them, and I'm um, just honored to be in their house, um, even when they're um, suffering for Jesus on vacation, and, uh, but uh, we are just excited to be here. My wife, she spoke to some of you ladies um, earlier this year, and uh, she does a great job. I tell her all the time, one of these days, I'm going to be the one sitting on the front row carrying her bags, listen to her because I believe in her and her ministry so much. And she's an incredible lady, and uh, I just absolutely love her to pieces. We have four kids, 19-year-old daughter, Mariah, and uh, she's a sophomore at Missouri State and just doing great. She's just, she's a brain. I, I did not know uh, that, I never saw anything near a 4.0 in school, and uh, I was happy with my 3.0, 3.1. I was like, hey, I'm good there. My daughter had a 4.6. I didn't even know it was possible. Didn't anybody else? is like, I didn't, I didn't know you could do anything like that, and I'm like, how? she brought it first home, and I'm like, how? This is four point six. How would you do this? You know, she's like it's this class and this class that I'm taking, and I'm like, dear Lord. But anyway, she's she's brilliant. She got it all from me. But anyway, she's just a brilliant girl. And then we have a fourteen year old son. His name's Makai. He'll actually be preaching tonight um, to your teenagers and speaking to both youth services there. And we have a ten year old son named Maddox. And then we have an oops, and his name is Malik, and he's four. And uh, he was not planned. Was not prepared um i remember i'll never forget the day my wife walks in one morning 5 30 in the morning throws something at me and says i hate you and tears are streaming down her face and like any good husband when your wife says i hate you you try to figure out what in the world did i do and i'm like i'm literally racking through my brain i didn't i didn't and i go i didn't do anything you know and i look at the stick that she threw at me and it said positive and i started laughing and I laughed for nine months and she cried. I laughed because I was 39 years old. I'm 43 now. I know I don't look a day over 20. But I was, I'm 43, but I was 39 years old when he was born. And I laughed because I would tell people he's going to be the one that when he's graduating high school, his friends are going to look at me and say, Is that your grandpa? No, that's my dad. But anyway, I mean, it's, God has a sense of humor. My kids went surfing yesterday uh, with Tanner. He took them and, uh, they, they just loved that, and I, I suffered and was the videographer, and uh, I didn't want to surf because I'm a fair-weather uh, swimmer. I love swimming. I grew up on the water, grew up skiing and things like that, but when the water's below 85 or the temperature's below 105, I decide I don't want to be in the water, and uh, so I just watched them. My 10-year-old took to it like a pro second time up surfing. You know, the rest of them, they're like, did you get any video of us standing up or any video of us surfing? No, because you never did that. You just kept falling. So I could not get you standing up. And my wife was like, you got no pictures of me standing on the board. And I said, I never saw you standing on the board. But anyway, they had a great time and they were with me last night. And today they're just chilling at the hotel. And, uh, but anyway, we're excited to be here. Mark chapter eight, if you'll turn there, you can see that on the screen as well. Mark chapter 8, verse 36, if you just want to mark that. That's really where we're going to build today's message off of. And it says this, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, yet lose your own soul? If I can start off by being totally honest with you, I'm, I'm concerned about the future of the church. I'm concerned about the church. And when I speak of the church I'm not talking of coastline I'm not speaking of our church is called Destiny Church I'm not I'm not speaking of those two organizations per se I'm speaking about the global church. And when I say the church I'm not necessarily referring even to a building or an organization I'm speaking of us the people. Pastors, leaders, church members, moms, dads, teenagers. I'm concerned about the church because I feel like over the years the message has shifted and I don't know what generation has shifted, but somewhere along the way, I believe the message in the church has shifted from what does it gain if you, what does it profit if you gain the world and lose your own soul to gain the world even if it costs you your soul. And I'm concerned. I, I, I look at the church and I, and I see the church is more successful than ever before. We're seeing more lives change than ever before. Churches are bigger than they've ever been. Yes, there's small churches, but the average sized church in America is growing. There's more mega churches than ever before. I mean, great things are happening because of things like social media. We have a broader reach than we've ever had before. We're seeing great things in the church. And churches are successful. Churches like Coastline and churches like ours, we're successful, we're seeing great things. and there's The people sitting in the seats, many of you are more successful than the generation before you. You make more money, you've got more promotions, you've got more toys, you've got bigger homes, you know, you've got notoriety, you've got fame, you've got popularity, you're seeing great things. And we're successful. But I'm wondering, what is the success costing us? Is it costing us our souls? David said in Psalm chapter 40, forty-two, verse five, "Why are you discouraged, my soul? Why are you so restless?" And I wonder what is the success costing us as a church? And we may be successful in man's eyes, and when people look at us, they may see a picture of happiness and health, and we might look like we have it all together. But I wonder, do we really have it all together? Are we really healthy? Are we happy? I'm concerned, because on the inside, I look at people, I, and I say this because I've been there myself, we're frazzled. We have become more adept at wearing a mask than I believe any generation that's gone before us. We're frazzled, we're anxious, we're stressed, we're overwhelmed, we're depressed, we're suicidal. I think it, I think suicide has even become like an Epidemic. Even with our teenagers, and our youth pastors will come to me and say, Pastor, in our small groups when kids were meeting and talking about the sermon and things like that, we had three kids say they were suicidal in this group and two kids in this group. We just in the last month have watched a pastor of a successful church commit suicide at 30 years of age. What is success costing us? We gain the world, yet we lose our soul. And I think David's passage of Scripture in Psalms chapter 42, verse 5, paints a very accurate picture of many of us sitting in the church today. Why are you discouraged? I'm successful. I have more than I've ever had, but I'm discouraged. I'm upset. And I say all these things to you, not from some pastor who's never lived there, but but I say these because I've been there. June 19, 2015 was my 40th birthday and I know I don't look a day over 20 but I promise you I am 43 years of age don't be shocked but no it was my 40th birthday when the calendar struck to January of 2015 something flipped inside of me and I started telling my wife I'm nervous I don't want to turn 40 I was like I'm scared I'm not looking forward to this and she's like laughing you know because I mean so who looks forward to 40 I mean, who's like in their 20s? I can't wait to get to 40. If you do say that, you're crazy and you're weird. But anyway, I never did like, man, I just can't wait to get to 40. Because when you turn 40, you like wake up of a morning and you feel like you pulled a muscle and you didn't even do anything. It's like, I'm hurting and I haven't even done anything. I mean, I'll, this week I was like walking around limping and the ball of my foot and Tasha's like, did you do that running? I haven't been running. I haven't done anything. I just got out of bed and it hurt, you know. So 40, nobody looks forward to that. But I remember as we were, as I was getting closer to that age, I was like, man, something inside of me. And I would try to blow it off, but I was literally, there was a fear inside of me. Not, not for the fact of even turning 40 and feeling older, and your brain telling you you can do something athletically that you used to do. And then you get out, like for me, get out on the basketball cart, and like my brain is saying you can still do this, but your body's like, no, you can't, you know? I mean, literally, just uh, two years ago, I was running, I, was, uh, I coached my sons in baseball, and we were putting them through a drill, and one of the kids wasn't doing it right, so I was like, I'll show you. And I started running, and I got to third base when I was running, and I thought the kid threw the ball and hit me in the back of the leg, and I fell, and I rolled in the fence, I'm laying there, I'm like, and I turned around to start yelling at the kid, and I realized, he was still holding the baseball. I blew out my hamstring. I'd played sports my whole life and never done anything like that. And I'm laying there in the dirt screaming, oh, you know. And my kids laughing at me, the other coaches laughing at me. And I literally tore my hamstring and I had, was literally like running half speed. So age does those things to you. If you're 20, just die now. It's not worth it. But anyway, no. I was nervous. And I was, I was running at a crazy, crazy, insane pace in life. Pastoring a church is growing. Kids, we have four kids because my wife can't keep her hands off of me, and she wants more. But I'm like, baby, I need to slow down and stop. But anyway, I mean, no, it's just, hey, this is like the fourth message this weekend. Who knows where my brain's going, you know? It was just, but no, I, was, I was running, burning the candle at both ends like many of you. I was stressed. I was, I was a mess. I was tired. And so I went to a place, I I went to a place called um, Refuge Foundation in Billings, Montana. Um, It's a place for pastors that are kind of tired and just need a break. And I went there just to go and hang with some pastor friends. And we were fly fishing on the Bighorn River, enjoying that. But the whole time I'm nervous. And I get, uh, I come home on Friday night, June 15th, uh, June 19th to, to come home for my 40th birthday and My wife had told me, she says, hey, we'll have some friends over and we're just going to sit around the fire pit and I'm going to cook dinner and we're just going to talk and just hang out with your friends. And it was my closest, most intimate friends. And it was a great evening sitting around the fire pit, but I'll never forget 9 p.m. that night. I'm sitting there and it was like a dark cloud set in over me. I can't describe it. I can't when my wife would try to ask me what it feels like, I couldn't describe it. Only if you've been in a depressed place, only you can describe that. And it was this dark, dark cloud. This, I, I, we described it as like Chad from hell. I, I was literally one person in one minute, and then at 9 p.m. that night, I changed. And this was a year-long battle until just past my 41st birthday and I was I I completely became somebody different. I went inside. I was like I just stood up. My wife's like what's wrong with like, oh. me? And I went in the house and she comes in and I start yelling at her. I'm going off on my wife. The friends all leave and I'm like I'm I'm just going to bed. And we laid there in our bed and I yelled at her and I it was like it was almost like I was like a different person. And I became and, and I became completely overwhelmed. And, you could, and my wife said she could see it on my face. She said it was like just this this veil that would just come over me. And like I said, this went on for over a year, just past a year, 13 months this went on in my life. And, I, and it, it, with each passing day, it got worse and worse. And I would have a good day and think, all right, I'm past it. And then my wife said you could see that just come back over me. And I would be overwhelmed again. And during this time, I, I became depressed, I became disur- discouraged, but even worse, I became suicidal. I had, I, my wife and I fought multiple times over me trying to get our 9mm out of the house so I could go and kill myself. I found myself one time, I found myself multiple times sitting in a cemetery with a gun in the seat beside me and just sitting there looking at tombstones and debating, should I kill myself? I grew up in church my whole life and I know the stance on suicide and I was like, but I didn't ever commit suicide for one reason really, it's my four kids. I don't want some other joker raising my kids. That was the only thing that kept me alive. Not my wife, not my relationship with the Lord, it was my kids. Found myself sitting on train tracks waiting for a train to come just to hit me. Multiple times, I, I mean it was, it was crazy, I would go hours missing And I'm standing on the stage at my church, though, on Sunday mornings and preach the gospel and be effective at it. My church never had any clue because the inside me was a wreck, but the outside me I could put a mask on. And I think that's where many of us are in the church. Our inside might be a mess, but we can put a mask on and make everybody else think we're okay. And that's what I was. I was was putting this mask on, and I was okay on Sunday mornings, or I was okay when I was putting on the show. I remember, actually, we came to California in 2015. We came to the art Conference, the Association of Related Churches. We came there. Uh, we'll be there actually this week, and Pastor Aaron's doing a session there. But we'll be, we'll be there. But I remember in 2015, the fall of 2015, we're about four months into my journey um, of suicidal thoughts. It hadn't fully reached its peak yet. But I'm completely overwhelmed. We come to this conference with all my pastor friends, people I know from all over the nation. And I come with some of my greatest friends, Pastor Rick Bazette, who spoke for you guys just a few weeks ago, a great friend of mine. He's he's one of the leadership of the ark. And so we're going, I'm ready to hang out with these guys. And I walk in, and this is the first time I'd been in a crowd of people that weren't people I was with all the time. And I was like, oh my goodness. I looked at my wife, I was like, we gotta leave. I don't want to be here. We were sitting in the service and she's like, What's wrong with you? And I'm like, She's like, Don't go there. And she could tell every time she's like, You can't go there. Don't go there. Like, go, we gotta leave. I gotta go. And I remember like, I was like, we got let's go to Disneyland. Cause I, cause we love Disney. We're a Disney family. We've been to Disney World multiple times. I'm like, let's go to Disneyland. I remember when we go to Disney World, I get happy there. Let's go there, maybe I'll get happy. And there, and I'm miserable, and I'm just walking. And my wife was like, You're the most horrible person to be with. We go back to our room, back to our hotel, and I walk in our room, and we've been yelling at each other. I walk in. We have our two youngest kids with us, and I start packing my bag, and she's like, where are you going? I don't know. Like, no, where are you going? What are you going to do? I don't know. I'm just leaving. Where, where, how are you going to leave? And I'm in LA, and I'm like, I'll just walk down the street. She's like, you're just going to walk down the interstate carrying your bag. I'm like, yeah. I didn't even make rational sense of things. Well, what are you going to do? How are you going going to survive? I'm I'm just going to go. There's mountains around here. I'm going to go, and I'm going to live there, and I'm going to be away from people. She's like, well, what what are you going to tell your kids? And I said, just tell my kids I love them. She's like, well, are you coming back? And I'm like, no, I'm never coming back. She's like, if you walk out that door, don't ever come back. She goes, you can't keep putting me through this and expecting me to be okay with it. I said, I don't expect you to. I'm done. I'm out. All the while, my two youngest kids are sitting there staring at their dad. And she calls. I, I'm packing my bag. She goes in the other room, and I didn't know this. She called our executive pastor who was with us. Him and his wife were with us on this trip. And he comes downstairs and gets in my room and stands inside my door as I'm trying to leave. And he goes, you're not leaving. And I go, yes, I am. And I'm not a cussing kind of guy. And I remember I looked at him and said, get the out of my way. I says, if you don't, I'm going to kill you. And he says, go ahead. And we wrestled, and I stood there, and then I started crying. I said, please help. It was the first time in the whole process that I'd really said, somebody, please help me. I remember I put my head on his shoulder and started crying, and I was like, I'm broken. I'm frazzled. I need help. So they called Pastor Rick Bazette, who was with you guys just a couple weeks ago, and another pastor by the name of Dino Rizzo, they called them and they said, please help our pastor. And I went and I sat at a hotel with them, and they started talking to me and pouring into me. And they said, all right, we want to help you, but if you don't do what we say to do, we're we're not going to waste our time. Like, we want to help, but you've got to do what we say you need to do. And so they gave me some steps, and I went home, and the first thing they said you need to do is you've got to go home and find a counselor. And so I, w- I never wanted to see a counselor because I'm a guy, and I'm a man, and a counselor is, is, a, is a weak person. You don't need a counselor. And I remember thinking, only people that are mentally touched need a counselor. I don't need a counselor. I don't need pills. I remember all these things running through my brain. I don't need anybody's help. I got God. And they're like, no, you've got to go to a counselor. You need to go to a professional, a psychiatrist. And I'm like, A psychiatrist? So I get back, I go to that psychiatrist, and we start talking. I remember when I first walked in, I was looking for the couch, you know? I was like, do I lay down? I remember, I asked him, I was like, I don't see a couch, there's two chairs and a desk. Where do I go? Do I lay across these two chairs? How's this process start? Do I just start talking? He's like, no, we're just gonna have a conversation. I'd known this guy for years. We'd gone to church together, a Christian guy. So I started talking to him, He traced, after talking for several hours, he's like, stop right there, right there, right there. And he traced what I was dealing with in that season to something that happened 17 years earlier. We'll get there in just a minute. So I get back, and I go to my staff, and I finally tell my entire pastoral team. I sit them all in my office, and I'm like, I'm broken. My staff had no idea. They said, you've been different, but literally they had no clue that I had wanted to commit suicide and thought of it multiple times and then my staff i stand before my church and then my entire church i stand up on a sunday and say your pastor is broken and i need help and i looked at my management team my, my board of my church and brought them in and i said guys i need help i don't know what i'm going to do do i need to quit do i need to leave What?" Do I, and they're like we want to help you you're our pastor we want you healthy and so they sent me to a place called Blessing Ranch in Tampa, Florida. Sent me and Tasha, sent us there together. It cost a lot of money. Um, our church, um, we, we're a successful church, guys doing great things, but we, we don't have a ton of money in our church. And, uh, but they're like, we want to invest this money in you, our pastor. And uh, so they sent me there and uh, sent us there for a week. I remember the first time we walked in, again, I'm not a big fan of this whole counselor process. At this point in time now, I highly believe if you need help, you need to go to a counselor. You need somebody in your life that can pull things out of you. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength to look at somebody and say, I need help. But anyway, I remember, so we go there. We sit down in this office, in this beautiful home, this beautiful office in Tampa, Florida. And the doctor looks at me, and we start talking. He's like, all right. He goes, don't lie to me. Don't lie. Don't." He goes, your church spent a lot of money for my time. He goes, so I don't need you to lie to me. I don't need you to blow smoke. He goes, if you're honest, We'll get this whole process right. And he goes, in any way, if you lie to me, the Holy Spirit will tell me. And he goes, and we'll have to start this all over. So he goes, I want you to tell me what's going on. So I was like, all right, here we go. And I remember I just threw up all over him. Here's where I am. And he's like, all right. He's like, all right, you're done for the day. And it was like 930 of the morning. I'm like, I'm done for the day? I'm like, I thought I was going to sit here for hours and just tell my feelings. He's like, nope, you're done. I'm going to go pray now. And he goes, and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit what he wants to say to you. And we're going to come back tomorrow. And if I'm on this, he goes, we're going to start talking about your care plan. And I said, okay. So we come back the next morning, which was a Tuesday. And he starts telling me, hold on. He starts telling me, hey, here's what the Holy Spirit told me. Am I on? And I said, yes. I said, that was, I was just like, this is amazing. And he traced it back to an event 17 years ago. That happened in my life. And he says, you've never got healthy from that. Let me tell you a little about about that. My daughter is 19. She, um, when she was six days old, her birth mom, my wife, my first wife, had a brain hemorrhage. And uh, went into an immediate vegetative comatose state. Um, died on the operating table multiple times. Um, it was the most horrific experience ever. I remember when the doctor walked out at me, we had to fly her in a helicopter. We lived 15 minutes from the hospital, and they came and picked her up in a helicopter and flew her there. I knew when the helicopter landed in my front yard that this was not just a, this was something serious. I had no clue what was happening. And I drove over 100 miles an hour to the hospital and got there, and the doctor met me, and he goes, Mr. Blancet, it's not good. I don't think we're going to be able to save your wife. And this was my childhood sweetheart. I met her when I was 12 years old. This is, the girl I'd always known I'd be with, my best friend in the world. She's gone. He says, you can come in and see her, and we're going to go into surgery, but we don't know what we can do. And I remember I walked in, and there she is, completely gone. I said, please don't leave me. This was six six weeks of a hospital stay there. At the end of that six weeks, the doctors came to us and said, hey, we can't help her anymore. We're going to send her to a place called Rusk Rehabilitation Center in Columbia, Missouri. Um, It's one of the world-renowned brain specialist hospitals, and we want to help her. And they're going to help her and see if they can get her healed and get her trying to live a somewhat normal life. Uh, I I remember I looked at the doctor and I was like, we won't go there because God's going to heal her. And God didn't heal her. It wasn't His plan. So we go to Columbia, Missouri, and we're there for six months. No change, nothing better. And the doctor, who was her doctor there, he the first time I met him, he looked at me and said, Hey, he said, uh, if she's not healed in two years, she will not be healed. There will never be a miracle. And he's a board member at an Assembly of God Church, and we prayed together all the time. And he goes, But if she's not healed, in two years, within two years, there will not be a miracle. And I said, Well, she'll be healed. Well, two years comes. I've not worked in 2 years. The bills are still there. Life life didn't stop for me. Still have a mortgage payment. Was just starting to build our first house. So in the process of building our house this happens. So they're still building this house and I'm making no money. Car payments, a new baby. Insurance, We, my wife was a CPA and had just cha- changed jobs, so her insurance at her old company had become a COBRA plan, and it just lapsed. We were just supposed to start new insurance after the baby was born. And so imagine having no insurance with all these bills. So this incredible season of my life, here we are two years, I go to Social Security because I'm like, hey, if anybody can help, maybe they can. So I go to them and I say, hey, I need some help. I said, I need somebody to come because at this point in time, I'm my wife's nurse, I'm her doctor, I'm her caregiver, I'm changing her adult diapers, I'm bathing her every day, I'm putting the food in her feeding tube, putting it into her body, there is a port in her side that we had to inject the medicine in, I'm doing all those things every day, I'm brushing her hair, I'm everything. This is, all, this is all on my watch. And I, again, I'm not working. I'd been in ministry. I stopped ministry. I was traveling as an evangelist at the time. I stopped. And so at the end of two years, I'm like, I've got to work. I've got to do something. I'm dying here. 24, 25 years old, somewhere in there. I can't remember the exact age when this happened. I can't. I can't remember exactly where all this was going. Two years in, I go to Social Security, and I'm like, I need some help. And they're like, we'll help you. They said, you can't make more than $700 a month for us to help you. And they said, but if you'll make less than $700 a month, we'll send a nurse, we'll send a physical therapist, we'll send spe- speech therapist, we'll send somebody to come in and care for her every day. And I said, I can't do that. I, I looked at the lady and I said, I'm well able. I said, I'm healthy. I want to work. I said, I can't make less than $700. I said, I have a daughter. I got to raise her. I said, I got car payments. I'm not going to do these things. And she said, I said, what do I do? And she says, well, she says, you need to get a medical divorce. And I said, a medical divorce? She says, yeah. She said, she'll become a ward of the state. The state will take care of her. And I looked at the lady. I'm like, I'm an assembly of God boy. The divorce is do not pass go, go straight to hell card. I can murder somebody and still be in the assemblies, but I can't get a divorce. I remember that. And I leave. And we go. The next week, we go to her my wife's two-year checkup. We take her to the doctor. The doctor meets me. He comes outside. He's like, Chad, you remember? What, I told you two years ago when we met? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I told you if there wasn't a miracle in two years, there'd never be one. And I said, yeah. And I said, he said, I said, what do I do? And he says, you need to get a divorce. And I said, man, I can't get a divorce. You're A.G., you know what it is. I said, I can't. I'll go to hell, you know. People will shun me. He's like, no, that's what you need to do. So I leave there, not wanting to get a divorce. I go back. We're living in my in-law's house in their basement in a little 12 by 12 bedroom. That was my prison cell. And I'm praying one day, and I'm like, God, what do I do? And at that point in time, every day, we'd have people come and read to my wife and pray over her. And we had this one lady come in who was really prophetic. And she comes to me, and she's like, hey, as I was praying for Carrie today, before I came here, he said the, she said, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you that Carrie releases you and that you're free. And I'm like, I knew then what she meant. So I walked in after she left, and I looked at my wife, who was my childhood sweetheart, and I said, hey, I, I love you. And I said, I, I got to go. And just weeping, crying. Woke upstairs and tell my in-laws, and they're like, we, we understand. And that was a different story. I'm going to write a book on all this. Maybe one day you can read about all the nitty-gritty details thing is that my doctor traced not all of that my doctor traced where I was suicidal and everything I was walking through in 2015 to what happened right after the divorce everybody I knew turned their back on me everybody I had I had just started refilling my schedule up to preach travel and preach at churches it was full again I was like all right I'm gonna get back into ministry and do this and and then every pastor that had me scheduled found out I got the divorce canceled on me. Every one of them, every church. So I was, had no job, divorced. And so I go and do what any good pastor that can't preach anymore does. I went and became a used car salesman. <laughs> There's no lie. I have a BMW Porsche dealer in Springfield, Missouri, right at 911. You know, high-end cars were not moving then. I didn't sell, I sold one car in about a three-month period. One. I was making no money. And so I'm telling my doctor all this. He's like, that's it. That's it. He goes, what you're dealing with today? He goes, so you never got any counseling when all this happened? I said, no. He says, he says what happened, Chad, is he said, you experienced a death. He says, without the burial. You experienced the loss. He said, you lost somebody that was near and dear to you. You never mourned her. You never got counseling. You never told your story. You never got help. You just went on. He goes, I'm so surprised you're even this healthy today, that you're this successful. He goes, I don't know how you've done it. I'm like, I do. It's, I'm strong. No, I was like, I, I was, he's like, I don't know how we got here. I said, hell either. Yeah. He you got to have help. So he says, we've got to make some internal adjustments inside your soul. And he says, you're always going to wrestle with rejection. I've known for years I'm supposed to write a book. I won't write the book because I'm afraid I'll get rejected. I deal with shame. Rejection and shame are the two biggest battles I face every day of my life. And so I'm struggling through this, and I'm running this fast pace as a man in ministry and calling it a badge of honor that I'm not taking breaks and that I'm not resting. And he's like, we've got to deal with that. And he's like, imagine your life is like a pie. And he goes, eight slices in that pie. Seven of the slices are healthy. Your marriage is good. Your church is good. And I'm like, "Eh, I'm not sure about any of that. My wife and I are every day talking divorce. And he's like, no. He goes, that's a byproduct of what's happening. He He goes, your marriage is healthy. You love your wife. She loves you. You have good kids. Your church is healthy. He says you're relatively financially in a good place now, but he says you've got this one slice of pie that says you're not healthy, and it's saying I'm going to destroy your whole life if you don't get this right. And so he said you've got to make some internal adjustments to get healthy, and so we started this journey. I'm going to give you in just a moment these three internal adjustments I make. There's many more I made, but there's three that I had to make. As I come out of this, I started reading and diving into a lot of soul care and how to get healthy in my soul. And I was reading a book, and I remember reading this book, and it was talking about this ancient coat of arms, and it had this Latin phrase on it that says, Esse Quam verdi," and it means to be rather than to appear to be. And I think in the church today, many of us appear to be healthy, but we're really not healthy. We're good at putting on a mask and making everybody think we have it all together. Remember, I'm standing on my stage preaching every Sunday. I'm still traveling and preaching. I've been in Africa multiple times during that period that I'm unhealthy, yet I'm dying on the inside. And I tell you, I don't want to just appear to be healthy, I actually want to be healthy. I think many of us on the inside, we're crumbling and we're dying. And we have this mask that everything is good. And especially in this social media world we have, it's this highlight reel. You want to see everybody's highlight reel and you feel like, if I don't have a highlight reel, who am I? And that's where I was. So I started making these internal adjustments to get me healthy. Because I don't want to just be good. I actually want to have a healthy soul. I want to be healthy for my kids. I want to be healthy for my wife. I've got a lot of work to do in the ministry. So I started making some adjustments and here they are. The first one, the first internal adjustment I had to make. and you You can make what internal adjustments you need to make because I believe every one of you in this room have a story and I believe every one of you has some adjustments you need to make in your life. Maybe my three will be your three. Maybe one of them will work for you and you'll make another one. Maybe you'll have 20 internal adjustments. I got about 50, but there's three that are central and three that are key. Number one, I had to learn how to scheduled daily devotion time, daily quiet time with God. You say, you're a pastor. What do you mean? Let me just, let me, I'm embarrassed to tell you that every time I get too busy or every time I chase a squirrel, anybody know what squirrels are? Where it's like you're like in the middle of a conversation, like squirrel, you know, anybody do that? Anytime I get too busy or it's like, I'll be sitting in my office like, all right, I'm going to spend some time with Jesus. And I hear like my staff out in the hallway and I'm like, Ooh, squirrel, you know, and I'm like, Jesus, I'll be back. And oftentimes I don't come back, you know. I find it embarrassing to tell you that oftentimes I lay aside this book and spend time with my Savior to go and do things that are trivial. When I'm at my healthiest, when my soul is healthiest, I am spending time in my Word every day of my life. I am journaling I'm writing, I'm writing out my prayers, I'm worshiping, I'm spending time in solitude. What do I mean by that? Is I'll go out on some of our nature trails. and You know, I don't have as pretty a stuff as you guys do here in San Diego, but we got some cool things. I'll go and I'll sit under a tree and I just listen to the Lord. And I would say every believer would say that those are beneficial and necessary for us. Many people say, well, you're a pastor, you've got to have, no, you've got to daily have a relationship with Jesus. And many of us, we want to come to church and have our pastor digest a sermon, and we sit here and we hear that, but that's the only interaction we have with Jesus all week long. And pastors and leaders, I can say this to you guys today, because I'm going to leave and go home tomorrow. I would never say this in my own church, and Pastor Aaron might not ever say this, but I, one of the, I hate hearing people walk up to me as a pastor and say, I'm leaving the church because I'm not getting fed here. Well, it's not my job to feed you. It's your job. You got to feed your own soul. It's my job to be a part of that. I'm going to help you on Sundays, but guess what? On Monday, on Tuesday, on Thursday, on Saturday, that's your job. That's your job. If the only interaction you have with Jesus is on Sundays, can I tell you, you're going to find yourself breaking down on the inside. If the inside you doesn't match what's happening on the outside, there's going to be a conundrum. There's going to be, there's going to be a breakdown somewhere. And I had to have, I have to have intimate time with Jesus every day and every time I find myself getting distracted by squirrels and getting too busy, I find my soul getting unhealthy. And what I found myself doing is reading the Word just to give public delivery. And that's the only interaction I was having with Jesus during this season of my life. For me to have a healthy soul, I've got to have personal time with Jesus every single day of my life. Let me give you a statement here that might speak to you right here. If you will become a person of daily devotion, what do I mean by that? If you will discipline your daily devotions, and if you'll spend time with Jesus every day of your life, please hear me, you'll find yourself beginning to heal from the inside out. Jesus, can I just tell you something today? Jesus is more concerned with what's happening on the inside of you than the comforts around you. Did you hear me? Jesus is more concerned about the inside than the outside. Number two, I had to learn how to stop. I'm not very good at stopping. Psalms 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. Now, contrary to what many of us believe, this is what I thought this scripture meant for years, be quiet and know that he's God. Be still, be quiet. And that's not what that verse means. Be still is the translation of the Hebrew word rapa, which actually means stop wrestling, stop fighting, stop all the crazy activity, and know that He is God. I think somehow we've got it mixed up, and we think it means, hey, be all revved up on the inside and know that He is God, be busy and know that He is God, wrestle and know that He is God. No, stop fighting. Stop wrestling. Stop running at such a crazy pace. Stop saying it's a badge of honor to work 37 days in a row without a break. Stop wrestling. I think the biggest reason many of us have a hole in our soul, the the reason many of us are unhealthy in our souls is because we don't know how to stop. We don't know how to be still and know that he is God. We don't know how to trust in God. We know how to wrestle. We know how to try to accomplish things on our own. We know how to run hard. I mean, from the beginning of time, we've been taught, from the beginning of our life, we've been taught to go, 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 go. As infants, parents, those of you that have little kids, what did you start doing even from an early age? Teaching them how to crawl? Teaching them how to go? Teaching them how to walk? We're taught to go, go, go. When I was a kid, learning how to ride a bike, five, six years old, my dad taught me how to ride a bike. He taught me how to pedal that bike and to make it go faster. And he taught me how to steer that bike. You know what my dad never taught me how to do? Stop. That was never more evident than the very first time I ever rode my bike. (laughs) Going down the hill, I'm like, I got this, I'm going, you know? And our house we lived at, it was a curve right at the end of our road. And in that right at the end of it, there was a field and I had a barbed wire fence. And I remember going down that hill. Five, six years old, my brain's not fully, you know, functioning on all levels yet, but I remember thinking, I don't want to run into that fence, but I don't know how to stop. And so I, 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 I didn't, I panicked, I didn't put my feet down, I didn't put the brake on, I didn't know, my dad never taught me how to stop, he taught me how to go. And so I turned real fast, and thought, if I turn to the neighbor's yard, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just kind of stop. Well, this was the point in time where they just started changing mailboxes and putting them all in one spot in the subdivision. You know, used to, if you, were, if you have any age on you at all, my age, like 20, but you know, 40, they just started putting, the mailboxes used to be on each side of the street. Well, now they're putting them all together, and I turned real quick. like I'll just stop here, and I remember I hit, there was two mailboxes, and, my, and I went, and I thought I was going to make it through those mailboxes, my handlebars caught the outside edge of both of those mailboxes, and whoom, and there I go flying and I crashed. And guess what? If you don't learn how to stop, you're going to crash. That's what was happening in my soul. I didn't know how to stop, so I was crashing. And I get it. Life is crazy. Life is fast-paced. Life is hectic. Success demands that you work harder. Success demands that you run faster. If you're going to get that promotion at work, you've got to run harder. You've got to work harder. More hours. If you're going to get that scholarship to be the athlete that you want to be, to be that scholarly person that you want to be, you got to put in more time. we got to work harder. we got to go faster. We're not taught to stop. We're not, we're not given permission to stop. The world might not give you permission to stop, but God does. God gives you permission to stop. Actually, not only does he give us permission to stop, he gives us a command to stop. It's called Sabbath. Sabbath is not what you're doing right now. Some of you think you're honoring the Sabbath by going to church. That's maybe a part of it. But Sabbath is not simply going to church. Sabbath is a place where you stop and rest and reflect on God. Sabbath is a place where you refill your bucket and you settle your soul and you breathe again. Sabbath for me, the last day of the week that Sabbath is for me is Sunday because I'm not resting right now. I'm working. I work every Sunday, so Sabbath for me comes on Monday, and that's the day that me and my wife both take off. We rest, and we do things we want to do. We go hiking. We go watch violent movies. Whatever it is that fills my bucket, that makes me happy, but God gives you permission to stop. God actually commands that you stop. On the seventh day, God created. On the seventh day, He stopped. He rested. So you've got to have you've got some internal adjustments. Number one, schedule time with your father daily. Number two, learn how to stop, and number three, learn how to wait. And can I tell you, I'm not an expert at any of these. I'm really not an expert at learning how to wait. I'm always in a hurry. Anybody else in this room always in a hurry? I'm always in a hurry. I'm in a hurry when I don't even need to be in a hurry. I find myself eating food, and I'm like, and everybody's like on their second bite, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm done and I've got a heartburn, you know? Anybody else like that? It's like, I'm always in a hurry. Me and my wife, you know, when we go to friends' houses or a life group or whatever, we're always first. And she's like, we don't have to get there yet. We found ourselves, this is no lie. We'll drive around the block four or five times just to somebody else get there. Why? Because crazy Chad wants to be there first. I'm always in a hurry. I'm in the office before my staff two hours. Why? Because I'm always in a hurry. I'm always in a hurry. I'm in San Diego enjoying the beach with my family, and I'm in a hurry yesterday. I'm always in a hurry. My wife's like, just slow down. I don't know how to slow down. I don't know how I, I, I don't know how to enjoy the moment. I don't know how to smell the roses. I don't know how to ra- relax. I don't know how to breathe. I don't. I struggle with this. I don't know how to wait. I, I know that patience, the word patience is in the Bible, and it's one of those virtue things. It's one of those fruits. But I'm pretty sure Satan slipped that in there somewhere. Because I think patience is of the devil. Because I remember I asked the Lord several years ago. I was like, I need some patience. I need you to help me get some patience. And God helped me. And he put every slow joker he could in front of me driving. (laughs) And I'd go to a line at Walmart, and I'd be like, one person here. I'd go to the line that had nobody, and I'd leave after 10 people left over there. Because this machine would break down halfway through. And I remember I looked at the Lord and said, like, I got enough patience. You're not doing it right. Stop. I don't know how to wait. But Psalms 37, 7 says, surrender yourself to the Lord and wait patiently for him. What does it mean to wait patiently for the Lord? Well, two things. It means complete and total trust, dependence in the Lord. We don't know how to trust in the Lord. We don't. But the entire foundation of our Christian faith is faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Waiting on the Lord, two keys. Number one, I have to have total dependence on God and trust that he can do this. And number two, the second key, the second thing about waiting on the Lord is you have to allow God to determine the timing of the plan. And you have to be willing to allow him to determine it. And I'm not very good at waiting. Whoever made up the statement that says God's never early and he's never late, he's always right on time, was full of crap. <laughs> Sorry I said that word in church. But anyway, Lord, I apologize. But anyway, no, I mean, I, whoever said that, I, I don't understand. He's, I, I Remember, I've told the Lord multiple times, you're late. You could have done this two weeks ago, but no, you got something more pressing. You know what I think it is? I think the Lord is trying to tell me, Chad, your soul is unbalanced. You need to learn how to wait. You're right, Chad. I could have done that two weeks ago, but you would have would have made you even more in a hurry. Now I'm teaching you to wait, and I want to determine the timing of the plan. Galatians six nine, don't lose heart, heart, because in season you will reap a reward, but it has to come in His season. He determines the timing of the plans. So what's it mean to wait on the Lord? Trust in Him, and allow Him to determine the timing. I don't know where you are today. I don't know you guys. I don't know anybody in this room. Your pastor, who's a friend of mine, didn't even want to hear me preach, I guess, and decided he wanted to go somewhere tropical. But anyway, I mean, I don't know you guys. But I know there's some people in this room that have a crumbling soul. I know there's some people in this room that are broken. I know there's some people in this room that are hurting. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, I don't want to just give you some practical steps. I want to give you some hope. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, Jesus says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Have you ever stopped to think about that scripture? Jesus says that. Not a disciple, not the Apostle Paul, not Abraham, not Moses, not some pastor. But your creator, your heavenly father, your savior, your sustainer, the one who says he chose you, that one, he says, come to me. If you're weary and if you're burdened, if you're discouraged, if you're depressed, if you're frazzled, if you're overwhelmed, if you're anxious, if you're nervous, if you're stressed, if you're suicidal. feel like you're at the end of the rope and you have no more rope left. He says, come to me. But I love this part. He says, and I will give you rest. But listen, but but, but notice here, he doesn't say rest for your bodies. He says rest for your soul. I think you can get rest for your body and if your soul is tired, you're going to continue to be tired. That's why many of you, even after you wake up of a morning, you wake up and you're still exhausted. Why? Because your soul is frazzled. You ever seen a duck on the surface of the water? A duck on the surface of the water looks calm, effortless. If you look just below the surface of the water, his little, his little feet are kicking as fast as they can. That's how I feel so. So every head bowed and every eye closed, all across this room. And again, I don't know who you are, but I pastor a church in Missouri. But I came to San Diego to tell you this. And this is my, even more than pastoring a church, my calling is to help people find rest for their souls. And if you're here and you say, Pastor Chad, I'm frazzled, I'm discouraged, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm nervous. I'm dealing with rejection. Or you say, Pastor Chad, I feel suicidal. Or Pastor Chad, I feel overwhelmed. Or Pastor Chad, I don't know how to rest. If this message resonated with you in any area, you say, man, I, I want you to pray for me. Would you just raise your hand? Hand's going up all over the room. You're not alone in this. Now what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you to do one step further. And I don't know if this is customary in your church, but this is, this is what we're going to do today. If you say, this is me, Pastor Chad. I want you to stand to your feet. If you just raise your hand, and this message spoke to you, and you say, I'm done being unhealthy, stand to your feet. If you say, I'm done being unhealthy. I'm done living with a frazzled soul. I'm done coming up, I'm done crumbling at the core of my life, and I want to find health today. Who else? I'm waiting for you. I'm done. I'm done. I want to pray over you, but here's what we're going to do. I want you to, I want everybody else now to look around you and see all the people that are standing. I want you to go and find somebody that's standing. Maybe your spouse is standing, maybe a friend is standing. I don't want anybody alone. We're the part of the body of Christ. We don't do life alone. So I don't want anybody alone. Nobody's standing by themselves. Go find somebody. I'm not asking you to pray a prayer in their ear. I'm just asking you to put their hand on their shoulder. We're part of the body. Right now, please hear me. Those of you that stood to your feet, please hear me. This is a moment. Please hear me. I just feel the Lord speaking this to me right now. I haven't said it in any of the previous three, three services. I believe right now the Lord is going to come into this room like a flood, and He's going to begin to minister to your soul. And I believe some of you are going to walk out of here today, and for the first time, and I don't know how long, you're going to feel peace, and you're going to feel like you can breathe again. And you're going to feel healthy. But listen to me. It's not just about one moment or one experience. You have to go home. I have to write down in my journal, hey, I need to adjust this today. Hey, I'm not spending enough time with God today. Hey, I didn't do very good waiting today. And I have to adjust those things. This is a daily process for me. So the band is going to sing over you. But I'm going to walk through and pray for some of you. But I want you just right now to grab a hold of God, your creator, who says, come to me. And he's going to give you rest for your souls. Let's worship today.